0: We had a good week at Revival. Services were excellent. Uh, It was fun to be there. But in the words of the great theologian Dorothy, there is no place like home. We are glad to be home Uh, and glad to be back in service here today. In a devotion I read a few years ago, Pastor David Platt wrote, for the few who have chosen to abandon themselves to the will of God and to put their trust in His character, following Jesus wherever He leads, no matter the cost, this is the only thing that makes sense. In the journal and the devotion i wrote the few the few who choose to abandon themselves to the will of god i mean is that really true is it only a few who surrender themselves to abandon themselves to the will of god and if so why is that the case And the years since i've read the devotion i've concluded that that probably is an accurate statement it probably is only the few who surrender themselves to christ and abandon themselves to the will of god and the reason so it's hard. Surrendering ourselves to Christ, abandoning ourselves to do the will of God, in some ways it sounds easy. Uh, I think some of it's the way that we've been taught. We've been taught to you know, come and lay it all on the altar. And so we're, we're kind of given the idea that we can make this one decision. We come forward. We, we lay are all on the altar. We surrender it to Christ. And, and at that point, we've done it. We're all surrendered. We're all in. But that's just not the reality of how it works. Instead... We we should have those times where we come and we lay it on the altar, as we, as you might say. But then we have to get up and go live that out. I heard a guy once say that, that surrendering all to Christ, it sounds exciting because we think of it as you have a hundred dollar bill and you, you give the hundred dollar bill and you make that one ultimate sacrifice and give yourself. But he said it's really not that way. Instead, it's like taking that hundred and having it changed into nickels and dimes. And then you go throughout your day and you give a a nickel here and a dime there and a a dollar there and 20 cents there and a quarter there. And that really is what it's like to, to surrender to Christ. It's not one decision that we make today and then we are fully surrendered to Christ all the rest of our lives. We surrender to Christ today and then we have to go out and live that surrender out. Because the moment we walk out those doors today, there's going to be something that challenges our surrender to Christ. Our abandonment to do the will of God. And in that moment when the challenge arises, we'll choose. We'll surrender the dime or the quarter or the nickel then. Or we'll do what we want to do and we'll hold it. For ourselves. And that's why there are so few who are surrendered to the will of the Lord. It's because of how difficult and how constant it is. But what kind of surrender does Jesus demand of us? We'll open God's word to Mark 10. We're going to start in verse 23 today. It should be on page 771 if you've got a pew Bible. Uh, when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. So Mark 10 and verse 23, and Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus responded again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and have followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Title of the message this morning is Surrendering to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome, you are wonderful, and you are worthy of our praise, and you are worthy of our devotion. Father, as we come to this passage today, it it's going to be hard. Lord, the kind of surrender that it calls from us is not the kind of surrender we are naturally inclined to give. And yet, Lord, this is still the kind of surrender that Jesus calls on us to give. We can't ignore it. We can't minimize it. We we can't do away with it. We have to just let these words settle on us in the hard way that they do and then deal with it. So Father, guide us today as we try to wrestle with what Jesus has said and what Jesus has meant and what this means for us in our lives. Father, naturally we'll not come to the right conclusions. Naturally we'll find a way to make this easier on us, less challenging. So we ask for Holy Spirit to come and, and to just use the Word to plow up our hearts so the Word would sink deep down and bring forth good fruit for Your glory. We ask that the Holy Spirit would come and He would open our eyes. We would behold wondrous things out of Your Word and that He would lead us into all truth regarding Your Word. We don't need to hear my opinion. and We don't need to hear our opinions. But, Father, we need to hear what Jesus says and we need to know what we're to do in response. Fill me with the Holy Spirit today and give me clarity of thought, clarity of speech. Let Your Word challenge us. Let Your Word convict us. That your word encourage us none of us are all that we're supposed to be and there is something that this word is meant to do to help complete us to help sanctify us to make us more like jesus so lord look down on each of us today and do what needs to be done do your work in our lives and we'll give you the glory for you alone deserve it we ask all this in the mighty name of christ our savior amen maybe seated this passage picks up immediately after the the rich young ruler has walked away from Jesus, the kingdom of God, and, and everything Jesus offered him. Now, look at verse 22. He was dismayed, and he went away grieving, for he owned much property. So we're explicitly told the rich young ruler walked away from Jesus because he was wealthy. Jesus told the rich young ruler that if he wanted to enter the kingdom... He had to sell everything he had, give all that money to the poor, and then come and follow Jesus. What Jesus was calling on him to do was surrender. Surrender your life to the rule and the reign of Jesus. And when the rich young ruler saw what that would look like for him to be surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, he decided the demand was too high. He could not do what Jesus was asking him to do. I'm sorry. He could do it. He was not willing to do what Jesus called on him to do. He was not willing to surrender to the lordship of Christ. And so he chose not to enter the kingdom of God. This was the choice of the rich young ruler. As the rich young ruler is walking away, Jesus immediately makes this statement. Verse 23... How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. See in verse 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. Now their amazement, it reflects the belief system of the day. The common belief system of the day was that financial prosperity of those who appeared to be pious and devoted to God. It was a sign of, of God's favor. And yet Jesus in his last few interactions has turned much, many of their common belief systems on their head. He has said things like the kingdom of heaven belongs to, to children. He has said that if we want to enter the kingdom of God, we, we must become like children ourselves. He has explained through the, the example of the rich, of the rich young ruler that outward acts of righteousness are not enough. To merit receiving the kingdom. That the kingdom, it it must be received as a gift. He has explained that with the rich young ruler, there was one thing he lacked. And that one thing, and our unwillingness to surrender that one thing, can keep us out of the kingdom of God. And now, he said that wealth, rather than being a sign of God's blessing and favor, it actually makes entering the kingdom of God Difficult. But look at what he goes on to say. But Jesus responded again in verse 24. And said to them children how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. So it's just difficult to enter the kingdom of God under any circumstances. But according to Jesus having riches having wealth makes it even more difficult. How much more difficult does it make it? Look at verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've often heard teachers and preachers kind of take the teeth out of this passage by saying what Jesus is referring to here is not a not a literal needle, but more of what they call the the needles eye gate. And according to the teaching, what it means is in Jerusalem and in cities at this time, when the, the gates would close at night, they still had to kind of let people in. But they didn't want to necessarily always keep a guard on duty. So what they would do is they had a, a small gate that was down low. And it was kind of a door inside the door. And, and what it was, it was called the Needles Eye Gate because it was so small that only one person could enter at a time. And it and only was very difficult. So when a person would come, on, it was, of course, the point was to keep armies from flooding in while the people were asleep at night. So when the, the travelers would come in with their camels, they would have to take all the stuff off the camel and set it on the ground and then they would make the camel kneel and apparently you can make camels get down and, and crawl and they would crawl through the gate and then they would tie them up and they would get all the stuff. And what Jesus was saying was rich people could enter the kingdom of heaven but it was just really, really difficult. Now the problem with this is the needles I gate didn't come into being until several hundred years after Jesus made this statement. Jesus is not saying... He's not talking about a a needle's eye gate. He's talking about a a literal needle. And he says just what it seems to say. That just as it is impossible for a full-sized camel to go through the eye of a needle, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Full stop. The weight of that settle on us. But to make it even weightier... Consider, by the standards of the ancient world, when Jesus would have referred to people as rich, he would have been referring to most of us. Most of us are considered rich by ancient standards. Not only are most of us rich by ancient standards, most of us are are rich by the global standards of the world. If we make at least $30,000 a year, which isn't much by American standards, but by global standards... We are wealthier, richer than 95.3% of the global population. If we make at least $30,000 a year, that income is is at least, well, it's more than ten and a half times the global median income. And we would say, well, most of us would say, I'm not rich. But our iPhones and our Apple watches and our smart TVs and our $100 tattoos and our gaming systems and our large homes and our multiple vehicles and our expensive vacations say otherwise. So there is wait for us in Jesus' statement in verse 25. It's easier, For a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this isn't the only passage and the only time Jesus has warned us about the dangers of riches. For instance, Jesus says no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now. Jesus does not say we shouldn't serve two masters. He says we cannot serve two masters. He is adamant it, it must be one or the other. But it's interesting what the other that he specifically mentions is. He doesn't say you can't serve God and the devil. He doesn't say you can't serve God and, and sex. He says you can't serve God and wealth. Why money of all the things that he could have mentioned, why Money and it 's because money has a unique influence on us. We can develop a, a godlike trust and dependence on our money to care for us. We can develop a, a godlike devotion to money that, that acquiring money becomes the, the focus of our lives. We can even develop a godlike love of money so that that 's what we care about most of all. But even this isn't the only warning we have about the danger of riches. Timothy, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. That's a strong warning about the love of money, about the desire to acquire wealth. And the kind of influence riches can have on our lives. The desire to be rich, to have more, can lead us into temptations. It can become a trap. It can lead us to foolish and harmful desires that that plunge us into ruin and destruction. The love of money can cause us to do all manner of evil things to acquire the money. And that that longing for money has caused more than one person to wander away from the faith and make their lives absolutely miserable. But even that is not the only warning we have about the dangers of riches. Struck those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. There's the warning about trusting in it. Who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Struck them to do good, to be rich in good works be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of what is truly life. Again, another important passage about money. Notice the warning about trusting in riches. Don't trust in them in part because they're uncertain. Money today can be gone tomorrow. Economies can crash. Things can happen. And rather than trusting in money that is not certain, we're to trust in God who, who is certain, who does take care of us. Now, notice that God has given us what he has given us so that we can enjoy. We don't want to minimize that. We have jobs or We have been able to, where we can earn lots of money, make lots of money. We shouldn't be rich. This isn't a call to, to live the sort of miserable monastic lifestyle, to woe and lament us. We should enjoy what God has given us, what God has enabled us to acquire. But let me say with this, if all of the teaching on God's word has about money, probably the part about enjoying it is the part we are all most effective at. That is the part we do the best. But notice what else it says that we're to use our money, we're to use our wealth for the glory of God. We're to use, I mean, all of this about instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, generous. All of that refers to to the riches that we have. So we're to to use what God has given us to do good for others. We're to be rich in good works. We're to be generous and be ready to share what God has given to us. And in so doing, we store up treasures in heaven. Now, remember what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. Sell all that you have. Give that money to the poor. Follow me and you will have treasures in heaven. So that's what he's telling us here. Take what God has given you and use it for the glory of God. And in so doing, you store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Now we come back to, to Mark chapter 10. And the key thing to realize is that the money isn't the point. The point is what do we Treasure. Do we treasure Jesus or do we treasure riches? Now the rich young ruler treasured his riches. That's why he wouldn't give them up to follow Jesus. That's why Jesus said we can't serve God and money because only one can be our greatest treasure. That's why those who desire to be rich fall into temptations, traps, foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. They treasure riches. And so their love of money is the motivation behind the evil deeds they do to acquire more money. Treasuring their treasures rather than Jesus leads them to fall away from the faith. When we treasure our money instead of Jesus, we might use Jesus to get money, but we don't really surrender to Christ. But when we treasure Jesus and not our money, then we use our riches to do good works, to be generous, to share with others. And in so doing, we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. There is indeed in our culture, in our time, great weight for us in Jesus' statement in verse 25. But the statement gets weightier. Look at verse 26. And they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Again, this stems from the idea that wealth is a sign of God's favor. And if those who are favored by God can't go through hell, can't enter the kingdom of God, then on who on earth can be saved? Look at verse 27, first part. Jesus said, with people, it is impossible. Who can be saved with people? It's impossible. Who can be saved? What Jesus is saying is on their own. No one. The disciples are asking who can be saved and what Jesus is saying is no one can. No one can be saved on their own. The rich won't be saved by their riches, but neither will the poor be saved by their poverty. The wicked won't be saved by their wickedness, but neither will the moral be saved by their morality. The cruel won't be saved by their cruelty, but neither will the kind be saved by their kindness. The atheist won't be saved by their atheism, but neither will the religious be saved by their religiosity. No one can be saved on their own. No one can be saved through their own good works, their own good deeds. This is the point Jesus is making. With people, salvation is impossible. And if the passage stopped there, it would be a very depressing passage. But he goes on. But not with God. All things are possible with God. Now, we often use that to talk about how God can do the impossible. God can do anything. To be sure, that's a part of the meaning. But it's not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is that God can do impossible things. Like save people. God can do impossible things like even save rich people. Impossible things like salvation. God can do that. What man cannot do on their own, God can do on His own. The point that's being made is that God alone saves. Salvation is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and only in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not any way we or anyone else can save themselves. Salvation is of the Lord and only of the Lord. Look, look at what we're told. But it's due to Him that you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. Now notice the exact wording. It's due to Him and that to Him there is God that we are in Christ Jesus. So it is because of God that we're in Christ. And it is Christ who has become for us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Salvation is, is all of God through Christ and none of us, right? It is God who came up with the plan of salvation we call the gospel. It was God who sent His Son to die in our place. It was Jesus who lived a sinless life. It was Jesus who died a sacrificial death. It was Jesus who rose victoriously over the grave. It was the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to to see our need for Jesus. It was the Holy Spirit who drew us to Jesus. All we do is believe. And what we believe... Is not even our own. We believe what God planned. We believe what Jesus did. We believe what the Holy Spirit reveals. The belief is active to be sure. It leads us to reach out and and take hold of what is being offered to us. And then once we believe, it is God who, who puts us in Christ Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus becomes our righteousness. Jesus becomes our sanctification. Jesus becomes our redemption. Everything about our salvation is wholly dependent upon God through Jesus from start to finish. There is no salvation apart from repenting of our sins and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one who rejects Jesus is saved no matter what. Jesus is the key to it all. And this is humbling. It's humbling to acknowledge we are wholly dependent upon another to cleanse us from our sin and make us righteous. It's humbling to acknowledge that our redemption rests wholly upon Jesus. Tumbling humbling to acknowledge we can't Add to our salvation. We can't improve upon our salvation. We don't complete our salvation. It is all of Jesus from start to finish. This is what God has done for us to save us. But this is what must be done for others before they can be saved. No one will ever be saved apart from what God has done for us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ this is the point Jesus is making here. Not only can rich people not be saved, but no one can be saved apart from God. What is impossible with man for a camel to go through the eye of a needle is possible with God. What is impossible with man for people to enter the kingdom of God to be saved is possible with God and and only. Through God. Now look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, behold, we have left everything and have followed you. Peter, ever the spokesman for the group, says what was true for the disciples. They had left everything in order to follow Jesus. They had walked away from jobs and families and businesses and homes and everything in order to go after Jesus. Look at what Jesus says in verses 29 and 30. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now the key takeaway from that is that we just never outgive Jesus. No matter what we give up for the cause of Christ, no matter what we give up for Jesus. Will be given back to us, according to Jesus, up to a hundredfold. Do you give up family to follow Jesus? Jesus will give you more family. Do you give up a home to follow Jesus? Then you'll be given other homes. Do you do you give up something to follow Jesus? Then Jesus will ensure other things are given to you. Now, this is surely mine and Kelly's testimony. When we moved to Gaiman 21 years ago, we moved out here and we left everyone and everything we had ever known. Our nearest family members were six and seven hours away. We we left jobs that we liked. We left friends. We left a home that we had purchased and loved. and, And we moved further west than either of us had ever imagined living. What did we find when we arrived with a toddler and an infant? Well, here's what we found. We found a family. Family that we're as close to as any family we were related to by blood. We found friends, better friends than we'd ever had before. We found a home, a place that we love and a people we love. We found hope. As great as this life is, we've been constantly reminded that there's something better that's coming in the days ahead. But not only that, look at it again at verse 30. Along with persecutions. I love that. Isn't that just like Jesus to be honest about how things are going to go? Yes, I'm going to bless you. Yes, I'm going to give you what you give up. But it's going to be hard. To be sure, we found hardships and difficulties along the way. But you know what else we found? We found Jesus and His all-sufficient grace. There have been many experiences of Jesus and His all-sufficient grace. We would never have experienced had we not left all to follow Jesus. We talked about this, and if we could go back all that time ago, what would we do? And we would do it all again. We would make the exact same decision because Jesus is surely worth it. What Jesus has said in verses 29 and 30 is is true. It has been true for us, and it will be true for you as well. Look at verse 31. The many who are first will be last and the last first. Something Jesus has reminded us throughout this section is that there is a great reversal in the kingdom of God. Jesus turns what the world thought on its head with his teaching on what the kingdom of God was really like. The kingdom of God reverses the way the world works. In the kingdom of God, the first will be last and the last will be first. In the kingdom of God, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In the kingdom of God, the rich will be made poor, and the poor will be made rich. In the kingdom of God, the comfortable will be afflicted, and the afflicted will be made comfortable. In the kingdom of God, the weak will be made strong, and the strong will be made weak. In the kingdom of God, what is esteemed among people is detestable to God. And so, God causes a great reversal in his kingdom. And when I finished all of this up to this point, Friday, I kept wondering, what is the the overarching theme? I mean, what is the one unifying theme in this passage? I mean, there are three clear emphasis. There is riches. There is righteousness. There is rewards. But what unifies those three things into one message, one teaching that Jesus is trying to get across to us? And I realized it's the cause, it's the idea of surrender. The passage begins with a rich young ruler coming to Jesus asking about redemption. To receive redemption from Jesus, he must surrender to Jesus. He must surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. And for him, surrendering to the Lordship of Jesus requires him to surrender his riches, which he was unwilling to do. So he walked away without redemption. The rich young ruler walking away is what sparked the rest of the conversation, everything we looked at this morning. And think about it. Everything we've talked about today has to do with surrender. I mean, think about with riches. Jesus didn't say we couldn't have riches and serve God. He said we cannot serve God and serve riches both. We must surrender to God and, and view riches the way he says we should view them. And this means we must view, be aware of the possibility of pursuing riches into temptations, traps, foolish and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. It also means we must surrender our riches. And rather than, than hoarding them and serving our riches we or pursuing riches, we we use our riches for the glory of God. Surrendering our riches means that we use our riches to do good. We use our riches so that we can, through them, be rich in good works, be generous to share our riches with others, and in doing so, we store up treasures in heaven. All of this is surrender. It is vastly different than what the world says. It is vastly different than the cultural idea of riches, and it requires us to surrender to what God says, what Jesus says, as right, and to live that out. But we must also surrender our righteousness as it is impossible for anyone to be saved apart from Jesus. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our sanctification. And it's done intentionally so that we will not boast in the presence of the Lord. None of us are going to get to heaven, stand before the Lord and say, Lord, me and you did it. You you helped get me over the hump, but I, I carried it on home. Well, we're not going to get there and God's going to say, "Whoo! I kind of pulled, but boy, you did it. You're awesome. It's not going to happen that way. When we get to heaven and we stand before the Lord, we're going to say, You did it! Holy cow! I blew it so many times. Had it not been for your hand upon my life, I would have walked away over and over again. And when I strayed, you sought me and you brought me back. Thank you, Lord, you brought me here today. Surrender. Surrender to the fact we have no righteousness of our own and we never will. Surrender to the fact our self-sufficiency is non-existent. We don't earn our salvation. We don't earn it in the beginning. We don't earn it in the middle. We don't earn it at the end. It is a free gift we receive because of what Christ has done. We must surrender and believe that salvation is only based upon the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must surrender our sense of self-righteousness, our sense of self-sufficiency so that we may receive from Jesus righteousness and sanctification and redemption. But then the rewards. We must surrender our idea of rewards to Jesus as well. What I mean is, as Americans probably, I don't know, I'm not, I've never been anything but an American, but as an American we like to make Deals. I'll surrender my, right, my riches to you. I'll surrender my righteousness to you. But, in response, I expect you to do this for me. right? We, we want to make a deal. I'll do this and in exchange you do this for me. But to surrender to Jesus means that, that we surrender our riches and our righteousness to Him. And we say to Him... You give me what rewards you think I deserve. We don't get to make a a deal with Him. We don't get to say, I'll surrender my riches if you give me this in return. I'll surrender my righteousness if you give me this in return. Rather, we come to Jesus and we surrender everything to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust that whatever rewards He thinks we deserve, He will give us. And whatever He chooses, it's what's right. We don't get to to feel like we've come up short because in the end we got Jesus and that's better than anything else. And it's all, it's all about surrender. So the key lesson for us today is that to come to Jesus, we must surrender our riches, our righteousness, and our rewards to Jesus. To come to Jesus, we must surrender our riches, Our righteousness and our rewards to Jesus. Look again at verse 21 and 22. Jesus looked at him and loved him and he said to him, one thing you lacked. go and sell all you possess, give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But he, the rich man, was deeply dismayed by these words and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. The rich young ruler had this choice before him, just as we do today. And he chose to walk away. And anytime we look at this passage, we always have to notice what Jesus did when the rich young man walked away. He let him. Jesus didn't lower his demands as a way of compromise. Jesus didn't offer to renegotiate with him what was he willing to surrender Jesus just let him go This morning Jesus offers you himself He offers you his riches He offers you his righteousness He offers you himself knowing he's worth more than your riches He offers you his righteousness knowing His righteousness is better than your righteousness. He offers you His rewards knowing His rewards are better than your own rewards. To receive Him and His riches and His righteousness and His rewards, you must surrender your riches and your righteousness and your rewards to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you choose not to, he will let you walk away without him. He will let you choose to miss out on everything he offers you. He's not holding out for a better deal. He is the better deal. There is, we have no room to negotiate. We have nothing with which we can negotiate with him. We have no leverage. We have no merit. He offers us everything. And in exchange, we offer him the piddly little amount of things that we have, which is nothing in comparison to what he has and what he offers us. He'll not negotiate and say, well, what about this? He'll not lower his demands. He knows who he is. He knows how great he is. He knows how wonderful what he offers is. And if you say, no, thank you, Jesus, I'll just keep my stuff. And like the rich young man, you will walk away with your stuff, but without Jesus. This is the choice that is before us all today. Someone to ask you to stand. And if you're here today, I'm not asking if you're saved. I'm asking if you're a prodigal. Any of that, if you're here today and you're willing and ready to surrender your riches, your righteousness, and your rewards to the Lord Jesus Christ, then in a moment I'm going to ask you to come forward and physically demonstrate that and call out Jesus and verbally explain that. I don't want you to come just because we're having an altar call. Fake doesn't do anything. Not only that, in a time like this where we're talking about surrender, something that's fake could really be insulting, I would think, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you say, my heart's desire is to do as the song says, I surrender all, I surrender all, all to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Then you come forward. If you can't kneel at the altar, sit in the front pew. But show your surrender by the willingness to move forward. Cry out to the Lord and offer your all to him today. I ask all that would to come to the altar to pray.